Thank you so much for joining us on Discover Economics, How Did I Get Here? So just who or what is an economist? There's an economic lens for every topic that you can possibly think of. The economists in our podcast are motivated by a desire to change the world and their belief that better data and better understanding are key to achieving this change. I'm very excited and enthusiastic about learning more about what economics can offer us as a society and what are the options when it comes to careers for young people. It's been an absolute delight to do this series and to learn more, to indulge my nosiness and to get to ask so many questions. The questions I'm hoping you as listeners will also have wanted to ask. So thank you so much for listening. In this episode, we have Latana Emadegu, and he is a doctoral researcher in environmental and resource economics and teaching associate at the University of Manchester. Hi, Latana. It's lovely to meet you, and I'm looking forward to learning exactly how you got here. So to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about your background before you started to study economics? Thanks, Jennifer. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. My background is Basically, I come from the science background before getting into economics and way back in Nigeria. I grew up in Nigeria, in Lagos, Nigeria. During my secondary school days, I was in the science department. I took all the science courses. I discovered of all the science courses I took, I normally performed far better in economics than those other science courses. Of course, I was not even thinking of studying economics. I was more keen on becoming an engineer, probably an aeronautical engineer or a scientist, just for that matter. After I graduated from the, I left the secondary school, I went to uh, the Polytechnic, an institution in my country, Nigeria, and I studied science laboratory technology as a diploma course. So I came out as the best graduating student in science in Polytechnic there, and I was to go for medicine or maybe something pharmacy related to in the university. But at that point, I started listening to some news on the way, you know, start seeing how things unfold economically in the country, the economic cup tones and economic happenings. And I started picking interest in that. Of course, like I said, while in secondary school, I did pretty much well in economics than all other science courses that I'd been engaged. Despite I didn't want to go for economics. But at the Polytechnic, they started having a rethink that maybe I need to study more about these economic issues. And that really helped me do that. I may need to maybe make a kind of diversion from pure sciences, as it were, to social sciences and economics in particular. So it was at that polytechnic I decided to, instead of going for medicine, I had to switch over to economics in the university. And so that's where it all started. So basically my background is in the science world, more of a pure sciences and even applied sciences. And that's really interesting. I love the idea of you sitting kind of in your lab, listening to the radio, and then suddenly you're like, hold on a minute, I need to deal with this problem that I'm listening, <laughs> that I'm listening to on the radio. So in terms of your time at school, and I love it that you were doing economics in secondary school because, you know, it's not always offered in secondary schools in the UK. It comes up as part of other courses. And of course, some schools will offer it. Obviously, we have the core biology, chemistry, physics and the math side of things and the statistics and logic that comes up in maths. Is there anything from that time that stands out to you? What was it about economics compared to those other sciences that you think helped you to perform better in economics than the other ones? Yeah, I mean, economics, um, thank you very much for that question anyway. At that time, we're studying sciences, maybe at a superficial level, maybe by the time you go more into deeper advanced sciences, you may now start to see how it's relevant to the society and all those things. But economics, even at the college level or secondary school level, applies 
what is being taught to what happens in the society. So it's very easy for you to connect. You know, you talk about inflation. You see it happen right before your eye. You talk about things like economic growth, and then you can talk about developing countries, economic development. And then you can see all these things. You can see how it plays out. So it makes you fall in love with economics in a way because it connects to your day-to-day experience about life. You go to the grocery store to buy something, and then you talk about the power of bargaining and how you are able to get the best price and all those things. I mean, it's that connection to real-world experience is what really makes economics to really uh, stand out. So you are studying something that you are also putting into practice. And that gives you a double win, a kind of win-win situation. That makes economics to stand out for me compared to the other science courses. And like I said, maybe it just, just because maybe I've not gone deeper into those science courses. Probably my time, if I've followed that line through, I might have also seen their relevance in uh, everyday life. And I believe there are anyway. Yeah, but it does happen earlier with economics, doesn't it? Exactly like you said. I did three sciences at school. I mean, I ended up doing an English degree, so I didn't necessarily keep doing sciences. But at secondary school and primary school, I loved science and still love science. It's really interesting that, to me, is such an important element of what sets economics apart. And unfortunately, because it's not necessarily a subject that's front and centre in our schools at a young age, that the storytelling part of economics, which is what our previous guest, Rachel Griffith, we talked about the storytelling of economics. It's not about necessarily the numbers. It's what do the numbers tell you and how it applies to real life. And I think that that's what's missing in the language of how we talk to children about what economics is. Oh, well, number one, we're maybe not talking to children enough about what economics is in the first place. But if we do talk to them, it's not necessarily about just the numbers. I find that so fascinating. I was listening to an interview and sorry, you may have slightly heard, although I'm hoping it wasn't picked up on the audio because I flipped over to the page of your YouTube clip of the panel that you were on for the Institute of Fiscal Studies about Generation COVID. And I was listening to that earlier and something you said in your introduction about looking at things globally and seeing what the patterns are because you've got that opportunity to see everything together, if you like. And I think that's such an interesting element of economics and data sets in general. I'd be interested to see what you think about this. So I heard you talk about that. I'm quite a visual thinker. So I'm immediately thinking of when you see the world from space and then you see all the lights come up all over the world at different points. And it just made me think of that. Like it's having that overview. And I don't know if you have listened to any astronauts because you're maybe not as sad as I am because I do love to follow an astronaut on Twitter and listen to them talk about their time in space. But something that they talk about is that distance, not just physically, but the distance to look down on the earth and think about everything as one thing and what can they see you know, having that perspective. And obviously they're much more eloquent about it than I am. And, and you know, and they, they will talk about it in more detail. But something that struck me in your panel when you were talking about it is that there's just such an opportunity for us to see things. And, and this is going to sound like a cliche, and it does sound like a cliche when you hear astronauts say it as well, but how much we are the same, you know, and how much there are problems that crop up let's say in food security and and things like that across lots of countries in the world, but maybe for different reasons. But because you're looking at those larger data sets and you're looking at them and applying them to the real world on the ground to see, well, where's the why for these numbers? That to me just really linked back to what Discover Economics are trying to do with their campaign, which is bringing more people with more perspectives 
into economics, because obviously as an economist, you've got to look at those numbers and you've got to look at the specifics of what those numbers represent. And you have a particular experience and background that helps you to see things in a certain way. And if we don't have enough different people in economics looking at that same data and asking different questions from different perspectives, then that obviously becomes a problem. So that's my really long way of getting to my question. <laughs> Sorry, Lotana. Um, thank you for patiently listening to me work through that. I just wanted to get your perspective on your experience of, let's say, your specialism, you know, when we're talking about environmental and resource economics. What's been your experience of how economists across the world translate that information? First of all, like you did rightly mention, global problems demand global solutions. And global solutions are normally a product of multidisciplinary actions. No one answer that gives a perfect solution to tackle a kind of a global problem. Like you said, it's very important that we look at the same issue from different directions because as an economist in a particular field, you are only looking at it just from a kind of spectrum, from a kind of eyeglass, from a glass. Then another person can be looking at it from this other dimension. And then we bring all those dimensions together and it forms a perfect whole. In terms of environmental and resource economics, compared to other kind of traditional branches of economics like macro, even micro, and maybe even development economics, uh, it's it's relatively, we can say it's relatively new. Of course, it's been there for some time, but when it compared to these other traditional branches of, uh, and it's because we basically, maybe I should just also add that, for example, what I did financial economics in my master's and I intended to do that for PhD, but uh, along the line during my master's, we had this interaction in a seminar like this where you know, environmental problems are being described. And I discovered that most of what the world is going to today, what is going to rip the world apart, is not actually macro problem. It's not micro problem. It's more of uh, an environmental problem. For example, you talk of climate change. And uh, so these are things that are more serious, uh, that have more serious consequences than, of course, others have severe consequences to both. In terms of ranking for me, I think this helps. So I feel that it's something I really want to go into. And also given that uh, where I come from, the region where I come from, is more affected by some of these uh, major atmospheric challenges. It's something that some of us need to get into to really not just look at the uh, the problem side of it, but to start thinking about the solution sides of things. So that's why I decided to go into environmental and resource economy. So I think it's a branch of economics where we want to look at the perspective of the environment from an economic perspective. Uh, because, of course, it's very important we integrate some economic perspective into the environment and then see, uh, so in the resources that are in the environment, the natural resources, and see how we can use economic perspective, economic leanings to answer some fundamental environmental problems that, that bedevils humanity today. Mm, absolutely. I also really like that there's now more of a language in the mainstream media that talks about the economics of climate change rather than just the, you know, do your recycling, which obviously is a very reductive way to talk about it. I know there's been a lot of conversations in that area for a long time, but it's interesting. I follow quite a lot of like environmentalists who are you know, across different African countries, Southeast Asian countries and South American countries who in some ways are kind of waving their hands going, hey, we've been doing this for a long time because we're at the front and we've had to deal with it for longer than you. So great that you've now realised this is a problem. Get in 
the water is warm, but <laughs> I suppose as well, how do you um, take some of the great examples of, say, engineering or some of the ways that farmers have started to deal or try and limit the impact in, say, sub-Saharan Africa and use that in your research work to bring those messages to, say, uh, European countries and you know, and, and other continents. Is any part of your work, because I know you've done, I've read some of your work that is specific about sub-Saharan Africa and say food security. And it's really interesting to me how, like I said, because African countries and other um, global South countries have had to face some of the environmental impacts, the economic impacts of environmental problems, maybe for longer than some other countries. Do you find that that's also part of what you need to take to the conversation? Because you're obviously having these conversations at a global level. Yeah. I mean, I believe that it's very important to acknowledge that the problem exists first. If we don't acknowledge that the problem exists, then whatever solution you are bringing to the table will not or may not be appreciated. For me, the important thing is to pass this message across that the problem exists and the problem is, is very severe in these parts of the world. So that's why for most part of my work, what I do is to really point out these problems in a very, very specific details to the international community through uh, my research and my publications that these problems exist and uh, they exist in some dimensions that we don't even think about. So seeing that the magnitude of the problem and the scale of the problem, I normally take a different approach. And that's why I said that to solve a kind of a global leading problem, we need a kind of multidisciplinary approach. And the reason is this. I've read papers, uh, I've written that, oh, if you want to solve the problem of, uh, let's say, climate change or maybe farmers adaptation in sub-Saharan Africa, this is what to do. Just give them seeds that are climate resistant and let there be irrigation and stuff like that. I mean, those are good talks. But the thing is, that will still not solve the problem. And I did a paper in, in, the, converse, uh, in um, uh, the Economic Observatory, and I said the problem with food security in sub-Saharan Africa, it's more of a political problem than even a climate issue. Because even if the international community wants to help and maybe say, okay, we want to put in fund to be able to help the farmers, to be able to help the households, to be able to... If the political structure, uh, if the institutional framework are not there, if corruption is not dealt with, those resources will not go to where they ought to go to. And that is why uh, we need to really work with political economists to find out how do we solve the structure? Make sure how do we work on the political structure to make sure that there is a high level of accountability, so that eventually, when the solutions to or the preferred kind of uh, mitigations or adaptation against climate change are being implemented, we are sure that because it won't get to the people directly, it has to go through the through the political class, and the structure has to be there to hold them accountable in case if those trust things are not done, like what we see in the Western world. And I'm part of the voice saying that. If we want to get it right, just like the Western and the American community are getting it right, then government has to be accountable. Most of the resources that goes to these farmers, these households, are channeled through the government. And where there are no accountability, then anything we write on paper about how to solve the problem of climate change will not translate to quantifiable and verifiable evidential solution. That's so interesting. It links back into, again, at my last guest, Rachel, when we were talking about um, everyone wants an easy solution or an easy narrative. But the problem is that there are so many moving parts to any very big problem. And it's also something that's come up before 
what you were talking about there with the political side of things, what's interesting to me, and I'm sure others kind of in the UK and across Europe, is that you can kind of see tiny small examples of how it doesn't matter if you have the food, if there's a problem at Dover and there's a queue of lorries full of food that are about to go rotten. There's this maybe complacency that, oh, you know, everything's going to be fine no matter what, because it's been fine before. And I suppose that in the next five to 10 years, we might find that in the UK especially, but maybe in other European countries and certainly across America, where I talked to Rachel about things like food deserts and how, you know, there's not always great distribution to different rural communities there either, that we can't take for granted that some parts of the world are excellent at this and some parts are rubbish. It's There's variations across the board. And I think that what I love about the conversation you're having is it's a reminder to everyone, not just that you're maybe talking about sub-Saharan Africa as an example, but that that could very easily happen in lots of other countries, just because it's not happening now doesn't mean it couldn't happen in the future, especially if then we layer on the environmental issues that then do influence crops and, and the actual availability of food. Once that gets brought in, then the politics gets even harder. It's very easy to be politically neutral when there's enough for everyone. <laughs> you know, It's much harder, I think, when, when there's not. So I wonder, I just want to take a step back a little bit to when you were a young boy and you were enjoying science in school. And what do you think, because you, you mentioned engineering and my dad's a mechanic. He left school early to do an apprenticeship and I, I'm obsessed with how things work. Like if you could see, like we just moved house and if you could see some of the things I'm trying to like build and I very much my father's daughter where I'm like, I'm not going to buy that thing. What have I got that I can hammer together and, and, and try and come up with something? And I suppose that, you know, that's something that children, most children, I think, kind of naturally have because you're learning how things work. And then some, as you get older, some keep that and some move on to other things. And then there's lots of things that influence that. If you were talking to, say, maybe not your parents, but I am going to ask you about them in a second. Um, but if you were talking to parents of children from all different backgrounds, maybe say like my dad's parents who wouldn't have expected him to go to university and wouldn't have expected him to be an engineer or a scientist, what would you say to those parents or children who don't see themselves as following that path? How would you describe, let's say, the joy or the value that you got from those subjects and from kind of following that path? Because I think that what's nice about your story is that, you know, everyone has their story, is that I love that you were like, like I love science. I'm going to, I like being in my lab and I love economics and I love science. And I love all these things and they give me, you know, different benefits. And then I hear this story and I think, do you know what? That's the one I'm going to focus on for now. And I'm going to go off in this direction. And then you're doing financial economics and you're in a seminar and you're like, hold on, here's the bit I want to focus on now. That's where I'm going now. <laughs> and I think that's quite natural. Like, I think that most people maybe don't remember that moment specifically, but I think that's a lot to do with how most people's lives kind of go from one phase to the other, if you like. So what would you say to them? Yeah, I mean, the world is looking for problem solvers, people that are able to solve problems. And you can't solve problems if you lack knowledge. Knowledge is very important. The more knowledge you, you're able to to acquire and apply, I mean, the more of an asset you will be, not just to your family, but even to your community, to your society at large. And one way of acquiring knowledge is by going higher, pushing further in terms of what you do. 
either in the sciences, pure sciences, or in the social science, economics, or engineering, or whatsoever. So my thoughts, or maybe my counsel, would be that it, there are lots of challenges in the world. I mean, you could talk from the financial crisis to the climate crisis to conflicts in different and people are looking for solutions now. We talk of about Hastings today. There wouldn't have been an about Hastings if about Hastings had not gone to school, if he had not picked up something that he loved doing and then tried to be very good at it. Some of the things we enjoy today are a product of people that really studied. And who knows whether that child that is studying what they are studying today could be the next person to give us a solution to a long-aged problem that had evaded many solutions that has come before them. So advice is let's just keep looking for knowledge, keep acquiring knowledge and keep applying knowledge. And the best way of doing that is by education. I love it. And it, you sound very much like my mum, what you're saying, those <laughs> things. <laughs> my parents were very keen on my sister and I staying in school. My sister is a pharmacist, actually. So when you said that, I was like, oh, <laughs> I remember I remember her making that decision um, in particular. What were your parents like when you were studying, when you were at school? And were they keen for you to do medicine and engineering? What, how did they feel about your different choices? Yeah, I mean, I come from a, from a very religious background. We are Christians and very strong Christians for that matter. I mean, my parents, they just believe that whatever I'm doing is the will of God. So they, they don't disturb me. I mean, they give me that freedom to flow into whatever there. Of course, there are guidance and we have to look at it together, but they didn't impose their will on me. I mean, naturally, they are not as learned as I am. I mean, my dad couldn't go to high school. Uh, my mom went to high school, but couldn't go to uni. Or, but they are quite intelligent, natural intelligence. You know? Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't a surprise to them. That sounds like my parents, actually. <laughs> it's a similar thing, but in a very different part of the world. Much colder, much colder. <laughs> But very Catholic, actually. <laughs> we were brought up very Catholic. And, and I think what you said there about your description of your parents being super supportive and things being the will of God, what I love about that is that's what Christianity should be. You know, that kind of supportive and loving, be curious, learn more and help the world and to kind of be of service. And it's interesting to me that that reading through some of your work, that definitely comes across that idea that you're looking at huge things, but there's a kind of thread. And I'm going to ask you about your educational investment piece in a second as well, because I think that ties in nicely. But yeah, this thread through that doesn't matter how big or how small the work you're doing, it's of service to the world. And also it seems to me like what you're describing is for children and adults and please, God, adults, stay curious, like keep asking questions, like keep learning. You don't have to stop learning just because school's finished. I'd love to hear more about your parents because I know that for my dad, like I said, he left school early and, and did an apprenticeship and my mum went to secondary school, but wanted to go to university, couldn't go to university. But like you said, very learned in their way, like educated themselves continually. And my dad still, I mean, my mum passed away 12 years ago, but my dad still is the most annoyingly curious person in the world. If you try cooking in the same room as my dad, he will be at your shoulder asking every ingredient that goes into that pan because he wants to know. He's just curious about everything. It's one of the things I love most about him. And so I think that for families and what Discover Economics is trying to do is just keep planting that seed of an idea of no matter 
what your parents do or what ideas you have for yourself that economics and similar subjects like you know we're talking about economics here but you know personally like you think that we need multidisciplinary you know we need people with multidisciplinary experiences to solve the biggest problems but getting to people to look at say their parents and think look past maybe the not going to university and see the qualities that your parents have that you have too that actually you can take into university and you can take into other places. So what was it like, you know, having your lovely supportive parents? I mean, you've said very, very few words about them so far, but I feel like I would like them very much already because they sound lovely. But what was it like for you kind of taking what you'd gained from them as their child, you know, in terms of their principles and experiences, and then taking that into um, further education, higher education and moving forward. You know, what kind of conversations did you have with your parents when you were making those decisions? I mean, it's toughness. I learned toughness because you meet some challenges, especially in terms of studies, courses that are quite tough. You want to get through, you have to be as tough as those courses or even tougher than those courses to be able to get through. I remember growing up, I mean, my dad was not really learned, but I mean, in terms of formal education, but he has this mathematics textbook that he bought. You know, some of these mathematics textbooks have the answers to all the exercises at the back. So it would just give us every Saturday, he gives uh, me and my uh, siblings 10 questions or about 20 questions, but we won't see the solution. And then after solving everything, we will write out the solution and then you will pick them up and go and look at the solution at the back. Now, the thing is, if you fail one, you are going to be, you are going to be flogged one. If you fail two, you are going to be flogged two. So you don't want to fail anything because if you fail the 10, there's a lot of pressure. And that really helped us develop our mathematical skills because every Saturday it's a must. We never, we pray for Saturday not to come. <laughs> it taught me toughness that, you know, you can't go about life easily. And, and that's the problem with, we are with some students. They encounter a particular course. Oh, it's, it's so difficult. The lecturer is tough. And then they go to another, they switch to another course because of the tough, not because of any motivation, but just because they want an easy stuff. And there is no easy way out. Everything has its own bit of toughness. You just need to develop a tough skin. So that's one thing my parents taught me never to give up. I had some kind of conversation with them, disciplined, diligent in life, that anything you focus your eyes on. And like I said, being Christians, we so much believe in that. Anything I focus my eyes on doing, I always try to get it done. No matter what I think uh, are the shortcomings, I give all my possible best to get it done. So I learned that from uh, my parents and it helped me through school. It had helped me because, let, let me just give you an instance. When I came from Nigeria to do my master's in, in Manchester here, in, in my financial economics course, it was quite tough because, you know, the educational system in Nigeria is quite, unfortunately, and that's part of what I wrote about, is quite very low, not comparable to what is obtained here. Now, some of the courses that are being taught at the master's level are taught on the assumption that you've done some courses in your undergraduate level, and those courses had not done them. You know, it was quite tough for me to really get through. How do I cope? And I was almost seeing myself failing. But thinking back on what I had been taught, I had to get those undergraduate books from the University of Manchester, go through them. It took me more time. It took me much effort, much study and everything compared to those that had their undergraduate degree in the UK. I had to do an extra kind of work. But eventually it paid off because I graduated with a distinction at the end of the day. And it was not because it was very easy. It was so tough, very tough. But eventually, because I had been trained to take on tough tasks, 
I was able to go through that. So it really helped me. And that has been carrying me through in every step of my educational career. I can just imagine that you getting to Manchester and finding yourself in that position and remembering that your dad had this maths book. And if you could get the book for the stuff that you were missing, you knew that you could do that thing because those painful, painful Saturdays came back to you. When you came to Manchester, because there's obviously there's a lot of Nigerian students across UK universities. Did you come across with any friends or family? Did you have a, a support group when you got here? Or because obviously, like you said, you found yourself in a very challenging position that you obviously worked very hard and, you know, achieved great things from. But I suppose that my question is, well, what kind of support system did you have in the UK when you got here? Yeah, I mean, when I came in here, uh, thankfully, the church actually supported me. I mean, basically because the church I attend in Nigeria are also present here in the UK. So I just took a letter. So, But that was in terms of just well-being, general welfare. But in terms of studies, economics, it was difficult. Although later in the class, we get to meet other Nigerian students. But before then, we don't know each other. But it was just them. We met each other. So in terms of general welfare support, yes, I mean... Uh, thankfully, it was there because of church I attend. But in terms of the course itself, the nitty gritty of the program, I needed to find my way through. Yeah. I mean, that does take an enormous amount of strength and determination. Yeah. You had no one to kind of sit beside in the class and side eye and go, are you thinking what I'm thinking? <laughs> in, fact, <laughs> in, fact, in fact, I remember I remember when I came in, I was told by a friend of mine that, oh, uh, some Nigerians from this particular you know, institution from Nigeria came to study in the UK. And because they had a poor background, a poor educational background, and they couldn't finish the course, they went back home without a certificate. And, you know, that was demoralizing. That was not the first thing you wanted to hear when you come to... And anyway, I, I, like I said, I'm a tough-minded person. I, those things don't really bother me. I believe in what I want to do and I go for it. I know that's the way I've been. That's why I'm trained. Yeah. And I think that's probably answers one of the last questions I kind of wanted to ask you, but I will pop back to it. But while we're talking about education, can you tell me more about the, I'll read the title of the piece and, I, and I've read the abstract and I'm not going to lie, I did have to look up some of the words. So <laughs> you've got, does educational investment enhance capacity development for Nigerian youths, an autoregressive distributed lag approach? Can you explain to me what that means, please? Yeah, okay. Uh, that was a piece I was invited to do by the African Development Bank, looking at the, uh, they had a program in the African Development Bank on investing in youth, uh, but they just did some studies to show what the present situation is and the kind of empirical studies. So the, other, the, the method I use, an econometric approach, just to think about looking at what had happened from the past. What are we expecting now? The piece is all about how government funding has affected youth capacity negatively, adversely. Uh, because government is not devoting enough funds to youth education. And that has, over time, I use that particular, I won't go into the technical details of that. I use that particular method to show that the government is not doing enough. In fact, the government is barely doing something, if we, if we have to use that language. It was really an eye-opener to the African Development Bank because they wanted to commit some fund. To, to the government, I mean, to several governments of the African country. And uh, we needed to show what is on ground and some of the terms. So that will form some of the terms, conditions they have to put in place before they will be able to render any form of aid or assistance to these governments in developing their youth capacity. So that's basically what I did for that for Nigeria. I think it's fascinating because the importance of education, I feel, I've spoken to other people before about how education, certainly in this country, is often thrown around and every time there's an election, things change, etc. And teachers aren't really allowed to kind of just keep building on the experience and things that they've been doing. There's obviously 
huge challenges in different countries across the world when it comes to education. And my parents always taught me that it was the one thing that people can't take away from you, that, you know, you could lose everything. But the things you've learned, you can keep, you can hold on to those and you can hold on to those things when other things go wrong. It's a foundation. And I think for me, because again, I had limited understanding of this particular piece of work, but I was fascinated by it, which is usually my starting point. I'm like, I don't understand this, but it sounds fascinating. I'm going to keep clicking on all the links until I can learn what everything means. (laughs) What I find so brave is the wrong word, but to do a piece of research like this, where you are standing up and saying, oh, you've got money to invest here in something incredibly important and vital, but here's why you need to think twice and do some more due diligence before you do that. I do think it's an incredibly brave thing to stand up and say, even if you're doing it because you have the numbers and the research and the evidence to back you up. Did that even play into your decision making? It sounds to me like you're a very straightforward and kind of honest person that these are the numbers, this is the information, this is where we are, and I'm not going to be swayed by any kind of political influence or or things like that. But that's incredibly difficult. And I think it's difficult for economists across the world in lots of different examples, because it's something that Rachel said is that I'm not a policymaker. I provide information to policymakers and it's up to them. Like I can advise them, I can give them the information, but I'm not a politician. I'm not here to make the policies. And so this strikes me as a very good example of that relationship and of that, you know, you doing a piece of very important work and having to hold it up in front of people and say, this is why there are other things that need to be fixed before you can do the thing you need to do. Can you tell me a little bit about that time, that experience of doing the research and then feeding that research back? How did you feel about that? Just like Rochelle is a, one of my mentors I look up to her. She introduced me to a lot of academic writing and stuff. She's been wonderful. I mean, I really respect her. I mean, it's basically the same thing with what she said. We are not politicians. Academicians are not supposed to be politicians. I mean, it's two different things. We're supposed to be honest with the truth. And uh, beyond being an academician, my position as a Christian makes me to say what I know is right. Now, as a patriot also of my country, as well as of my region, I mean, if I leave the government, and then they think everything is right. While I, from my, I mean, I could be wrong, you know, like in, in economic modeling, you could be wrong, you know, and you should accept that. Someone else could do something and find out where you made some mistake. So, but based on the information I have, if I see that something is just like a doctor and a patient, a patient, a doctor sees that, oh, this patient has this particular deliberating disease. But if I tell this patient that they have this disease, they will feel bad. Let me make the patient feel happy and tell the patient otherwise. Eventually, the patient will die and then the doctor will not, will, will lose, will have to lose uh, their license. Now, the thing is this, if we don't tell, and these are, these are places where I, uh, that is my country. I mean, I work in sub-Saharan Africa, that's my region. I want to see improvement. So as a patriot, if I see something wrong, like a doctor, I'll tell the patient who happens to be the policymaker. Because when we talk about the economy, we have the household as an agent, then we have the firm, then we have the, you know, we have the country. So if we diagnose a problem, an economic problem, we'll tell the authorities or the policymakers that this is the problem and this could be the solution. And just like the doctor cannot force the patient to take his advice, we can also coerce the policymakers to take our counsel. We can only show them the but it's good to be honest. And like I say, apart from being an academician who shouldn't be, who should be, I mean, it's not as if you don't have maybe a political leaning, but in terms of your research, you should try as much as possible to be bipartisan. 
my strong Christian conviction also forbids me to do things that are not honest. And also as being a patriot of, I mean, I'm not doing research for, let's say, another country. Of course, I do, I did, I, I do works on, on the U.S. economy and also, I mean, but basically if I'm working for, on, on sub-Saharan Africa or even Nigeria in, in particular, I like to, you know, always try to get detailed, specific points of what I'm saying, because whatever good that turns out to be, my family is there, my parents are there. If I don't tell the truth in terms of the research I do, and the government uses what I do to make policies that are not good, it's going to affect those that I love that are in that country. So that's why it's good for our research to really uh, be as honest as possible. So that it's on record that the truth was out, but it's just that they either used it or they decided not to use it. That is so important. You said this at the very beginning, that economics impacts people. There's an outcome, there's a consequence to decisions that are made and then it's very related to the population. And it's something that, you know, we're hoping with this podcast for Discover Economics, what we want is for you know people who have an invested interest at every level of society should be involved in economics because what you do and the advice you give governments and anyone, not just governments, but other people who influence lives, you know, the information you give them impacts your family and people you know. And I think that certainly in the economics as a sector, let's say as an employer, you know, if you are an economist in, in Western countries, you know, there's a huge disconnect in that the vast majority of them are from a certain socioeconomic background. They're majority white, male, a certain age at this point. And so you almost lose that connection if you don't have, you know, people researching economics and different types of economics from all levels of society and from all areas of society, because then you lose that connection of exactly what you've just described of the work you do has an impact on people you love. And that I think is important for not just in economics. I think it's important in most jobs, actually. It's nice if you're doing something that impacts people you love positively. So I love what you've said there. And I really, really appreciate you letting me ask you lots of questions and gibber on at you because I there's lots that I don't understand. Because I think when we made the decision to do this podcast, I said, well, I'll ask the questions because I'm not an economist. And the people we want to listen <laughs> are not economists. So hopefully I can ask questions that they might ask. And I'm hoping that eventually they'll tell me the questions they want to ask people. So we very may well ask you back on, Latana, if you'd be willing to, um, and we can get some questions in um, to ask you specifically. And I bet some of your students that you're teaching today and have taught in the past will have lots of questions for you as well. I suppose then to finish off, I mean, one, I again, this is me just being selfish because I'm very nosy. <laughs> I'd love to know what your plans are for you personally as an economist. Like, what, where would you like to take your research and your work next? So that's one last question. So that's last question, part A. And last question, part B, is what advice would you like to leave parents and teachers with if they're looking at a child and there's a potential there that they could come into this line of work? How do they nurture that? What could they do to nurture that? Yeah, okay. Thank you. I'm excited with this course because it's, we really need to get this message out there. Perhaps there are some misconceptions about economists. Some people see economists as thrifty people. As uh, If you say you're an economist, they say, oh, you are, so, you are a stingy person. They equate an economist to uh, a stingy person. And I mean, it's yeah. a misconception. Like Scrooge. Yeah, yeah, Scrooge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so presently I work 
on a lot of projects uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa related. And that's really my interest because a lot of things need to be done there. I mean, we are trying to see how to close up global inequality, global inequality uh, in different aspects. And in one aspect of global inequality is in the way the effect of climate change is distributed. The regions where this uh, where pollution is being really made are not the one bearing the major ground of the effect of those emissions. It goes to these other places where little marginal kind of emissions have been produced. So that's inequality. And so, and that's part of the research I'm doing to see how we can either adapt to this or even mitigate it so that it doesn't even happen in the first instance. And that is, like I said, that's my, so that's where I really want to focus on and I'm focusing on. So I intend to continue as a researcher, probably working in a research institute or a university uh, in the environmental and resource, under the res- environmental and resource economics umbrella, of course, in an economics department, but still working to solve these problems. And also working across multidisciplinary, because like I said, it's not a one shoe fit all. It has to get in into a team working in a multidisciplinary team to prefer a multidisciplinary approach, a solution to these problems so that we can at least bridge that inequality, climate change effect inequality. And in terms of what advice do I have to teachers, I do tell teachers, if you want to make a subject attractive to a student, then you have to make the student enjoy the subject. Are uh, very very important. You have to make them love it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yes. something can be so good, but if you don't sell the product well, you're not going to make much income out of it. And that's why you see some good salesmen; they know how to sell bad product, and yet they are going to, you know. So you have to make <laughs> you have to make it enjoyable. And part of the way of of making this um, uh, making this economics enjoyable is connect it with what they do every day. Don't don't let them see economics as something abstract at something they can as something they can't touch as something they can reach you know we have a lot of blogs and websites that has been developed on how to teach economics for example the economics network there are a lot of games there are lots of experiments you can do in classroom classroom experiments to trigger interest you give them this classroom experiment you have already sparked an interest in them now oh is this how this thing works in you uh, this how demand and supply framework and they do the experiment in class and they see how it works in the real life you know that triggers an interest in them and some of them may want to follow that through to university uh, to study in, uh, in a higher degree pursuit. So the thing is, let's make the course interesting for them. Let's give them opportunity to ask their questions. Let's do some games and experiment with them in class. And let's make sure we relate what we are teaching with what is happening, maybe in the dailies, in the dailies, in the Guardian, in BBC. We bring all these things and we tie them to what we are teaching them. So they see the practicality, the essentiality of what they are learning, the real life application of what they are learning in the classroom. That triggers an interest in them, I believe. Oh, I wish I could put you in every classroom in the UK or that you were my teacher. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say that knowing that you are working on some of these astronomically sized problems and trying to solve them is very reassuring to me. And I thank you very, very much, not just for your time today. It's been amazing. Thank you so much. And like I said, we might try and get you back if you'd be willing and we'll get you some more questions. Um, (laughs) But thank you so much for the work that you're doing as well. It's very important. And thank your parents, because like you said, without them and without those Saturday mornings, the Saturday morning math classes, (laughs) you would not be here. (laughs) So I appreciate it very much, Latana. 
And that's that for that episode. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to get in touch with any questions, please visit our website, discovereconomics.co.uk, where you'll also find loads of useful resources. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, remember to go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review. Also remember to subscribe through whichever podcast app you're using so that you always get any new episodes as soon as they're published. See you on the next episode.